Welcome to the iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast. This is where we connect with healthcare providers from various clinical settings to learn more about how they are leading through innovation, protocol development, and integration of evidence to provide excellent clinical care to their patients. Join the conversation with your hosts from Medical Affairs at Baxter Canada. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. My name is Michelle DeGloria. I am joined by Angela Craig, who is a critical care clinical nurse specialist and sepsis coordinator. Today's topic is nurse-driven protocols. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation and thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining me today, Angela. I'm wondering if you would be able to give me an introduction and tell me about your current role and your experience. Well, you're welcome for being here. Um, I love to um, network, and this seems like this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, My current role, I am the clinical nurse specialist for an intensive care unit at Cookville Regional Medical Center in Cookville, Tennessee, and I'm an advanced practice nurse, and I also am the hospital sepsis coordinator. So some of my experience has been um, when I first got out of college, I was a bedside nurse, and then I went on and um, got um, some more education, and then I was a clinical nurse specialist for two telemetry units in um, the suburbs of Chicago, and then I moved to Michigan. I did some academia and was faculty for Lansing Community College, and then um, I moved to Tennessee, where I am now doing what I feel like back to what I always loved, critical care and um, the role of the clinical nurse specialist. Amazing. So you've had lots of varied experiences and bring lots of um, different perspectives to the table, which is fantastic. Um, Today, we're going to be chatting about nurse-driven protocols. And I'd really like to hear from you. um, What were some of the background and driving forces behind the creation of nurse-driven protocols within your organization? And maybe even if we backtrack a little bit and just touch on what is a nurse-driven protocol, maybe that's a good place to start. Sure. Well, for us, for me, I just think as a nurse, there are things that we can do more effectively at times if we have a protocol that's in place. So what happens is if we find a specific item that we feel like as nurses, we can do a good job and maybe even better outcomes by initiating a certain concept, um, before the provider would be included in the conversation, then we try to formulate that like in a policy standpoint, a strategy um, that just basically has a, a protocol listed out and what that would look like. And then I take it through committees at my hospital and to where the providers can see that and I show them the evidence. I think it's really important that we show the evidence as to why we feel like this would um, have better outcomes for our patients. And then um, really just um, encouraging the providers to give their feedback and usually they will. And then you have to kind of go through the process of, okay, um, what's going to, what do we have to give and what do we have to take? So there definitely has to be compromise. Um, but what I really encourage is that if anybody is feeling strongly about needing a nurse-driven protocol to really take the plunge. Um, some institutions are very familiar with that and some not as much. Um, some states and some uh, areas feel more comfortable with nurse-driven protocols. Others do not. 
So um, I think, you know, it's really an important thing. And we have um, implemented numerous nurse-driven protocols at our institution. Can you give me some examples of the different nurse-driven protocols that you have in place? Sure. Um, One of our nurse-driven protocols that I really like, it has actually a lot of a lot of different protocols all in one document, but it is our critical care standing orders. And they are meant for every patient who comes in the, to the ICU unless the provider says that we um, they don't want that. But it literally allows us to do things like initiate a PT eval, um, so physical therapy eval. Um, it allows us to get certain labs and get certain um radiology tests done. So for instance, let's say I can't hear good breath sounds on my uh, patient who's on the vent. I can only hear breath sounds on one side and they're having respiratory compromise and I'm nervous that they're having a pneumo. I can call for that that chest x-ray and can do that per protocol. I can also call for stat ABGs and do that per protocol and then call my provider and say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what I've obtained. I think it just aids in like critical thinking. Um, and, and and helps with having the ability to use your your brain to try to think through what should I do next and not just always be dependent on somebody being there because, um, you know, a provider might have to be in five places at once. So we've got to, and especially in critical care, I feel like that can help. Um, another part of that protocol is hemodynamic monitoring. So we have a clause in there that says if a patient is hemodynamically unstable, um, and does not have an A-line, then we can initiate non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring. And if they have an A-line, we can initiate a less invasive hemodynamic monitoring. And so we have the ability as nurses to do that. And I love that because um, I don't want to have to just always go and ask, hey, can we do this? I want us to think and, and initiate protocols and then see what that shows us. For instance, if it's hemodynamics, what is this looking like? Maybe I'll even do a passive leg raise. And then I have good information that I can share with my provider versus the provider saying, okay, maybe we'll hook this up, right? Um, so I just, I really like being proactive like that. And those are just some examples. So really what I'm hearing from you is real, nurse-driven protocols help to not only empower the staff to critically assess their patient and um, follow pre-existing standards that sort of eliminate that need for that. Um, We've all been there, the 3 a.m. call to the physician (laughs) where you're really not sure that you want to be the one on the receiving end of that call. Um, So it sort of helps to make sure that you have all of your information when you do make that call and when you do seek um, the the assistance and the guidance of the prescriber. Yeah, I think you really uh, said it well, and that's exactly correct. And then just you can have more information, more like data that you can give these providers at whatever time of the night it is or the day to where you feel like, you know, you can, um, it's not just asking for a test and and the time factor, you know, um, I always say time is tissue, right? So I really truly believe that in many situations, the timeliness of, of, identifying what's going on with a patient can make a difference. So I think that's, that's a really important part as well. How would you say, now I know that your uh, experience is primarily in critical care nursing. Do you see a, 
a place or the value of having these nurse-driven protocols outside of the ICU? Absolutely. In fact, you know, we just recently, what I find is a lot of times we will um, launch a protocol maybe in the critical care first, and then we launch it out maybe halfway. So, for instance, with our sepsis protocol, had very specific times when we would obtain blood cultures as nurses, when we would obtain um, the lactic acid, and then we would call the provider for fluid and for antibiotics. So now, you know, then about a year later after we rolled out that protocol, we rolled it out housewide so that we're empowering nurses to screen and then we're empowering nurses to intervene. And as long as you have really clear steps, that can be excellent. Um, another example would be recently we just rolled out a housewide progressive mobility protocol. And so where we were just doing this in ICU and CVICU uh, where we could go ahead and put a PT eval in um, for certain patients that meet certain criteria. Now we've rolled it out housewide where we're trying really hard to keep the focus on really mobilizing our patients as soon as possible. So um, yes, on the floor is a great idea. Um, I think with hemodynamics, another great opportunity would be to have your rapid response team where they could do non-invasive hemodynamics right out on the floor um, when they're going to a rapid response. So I think there are so many opportunities um, housewide, really. And I like the way that you um, discussed how when you're implementing and, and sort of bringing together the data to create these protocols, you're looking at the evidence and they're based on what we know is best practice and then translating that into um, what sounds like a, a very user-friendly document that not only helps guide their clinical assessment, but also improves, I would assume, um, patient care and patient outcomes. Yes, and I think that is really important that we have easy-to-follow documentation and make your documentation work for you or have kind of like what I call educational order sets or um, order sets that kind of guide you um, or protocols that really guide you. So like on our protocol sheet for critical care, it's all listed out there what we can do based on, you know, this, then we can do this. And um and then it always says, you know, a provider's orders always supersede uh, a protocol. Right. So if they want to change it, they can. So there should be no pressure on the provider side to be upset uh, about this. Um, and they can always say, hey, you can't do it on my patient. But I've, I don't find that that's um, the case with most of our ICU patients. That's fantastic. I always um, used to joke in my previous role, I was responsible for writing a lot of policies and procedures. And I would laugh and say, you know, the difficulty with writing a policy or procedure is it has to be comprehensive enough to guide the novice nurse and not so overwhelmingly long that it's not re not reviewed and not utilized in practice. So I completely 100% agree with you that easy to follow has got to be key. And absolutely, um, I think the fact that you don't have a lot of, um, I'm, I'm going to call it pushback from prescribers demonstrates that obviously you've done your research, you've created documents that are evidence-based and support uh, best practices for our patients. Um, so that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and I will tell you that, you know, the longer you're at an institution as they start um, 
believing in you. I will say it's much easier for me today, 14 years later at the same institution to institute something than it was at the beginning. And you know, anytime you're new at an institution, it's kind of like starting over And there. I think they might've been a little leery of me at first, but then as you show them the evidence and you say, listen, this isn't me, this is really what's out there. And this is what we can do for our patients. And if nothing else, you know, you can always say, Hey, can we try a pilot? Right. Right. And, and see how well it goes and then go from there. And then I've had to compromise too, you know, like there are some things in, I think of one of my protocols, there's a little time delay for somebody to have to, um, to do a sepsis screen. And I don't agree with that, but in order to bring this out house wide and to allow it to be a protocol, I had to give a little, right? right. So, um, I think there is some give and take, and I think we um, have a lot of wins and we try not, you try not to get too discouraged by the, um, by sometimes that compromise, because I think that's just important and part of it. Well, and I think that also demonstrates great uh, collaboration amongst the stakeholders. You know, if if there is if everyone is willing to sort of bend a little bit, it certainly makes um, even to your point, like start off as a pilot, see see how it goes, evaluate the results, and and look at the data and see where there is opportunity for improvement or you know stay with the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, out of curiosity, what um, is the general uh, process for reviewing a protocol within your organization? Do you, is there, you know, are, are they sort of reviewed at the same frequency as, let's say, policy and procedure might be reviewed, or is there a different process? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, our policies. And, and sometimes different institutions are going to do this differently, but a lot of my protocols have a policy that is attached to it. What I like about that, and I'm not sure that may be a little excessive. I often say I'm a maximalist versus a minimalist. So whether that's good, bad, indifferent, um, what I like about that is we do have a process for reviewing our policies. And I think it's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, every three years or every two years or whatever, um, whatever the rule is for um, yes. for joint commission or whatever, um, for accreditation. So when, when we, it comes around time to review those, like my name gets attached to a lot of these protocols that I've worked on and developed. So then it forces me to have to review those and update them. But I will say, you know, I've uh, I've updated mine quite a bit without it being the two-year mark. I mean, sometimes we're updating them, you know, when we realize, oh, wait, you know, we need to change something. So um, it, it, it's nice when there is a, a formal way of reviewing those so that too you can see, hey, is anything new changed? Right. Like for instance, recently we, um, we're we making changes to our hypothermia protocol, our hypothermia after cardiac arrest. And, you know, there um, were just some changes, some, some things that we've just had in our protocol for a long time. Some of them really didn't make a lot of sense. And so, you know, it's easy just to keep those in there, but now we're like, okay, we need to really look at this and what is the evidence saying? And then I think another good thing to do is to um, to put references and resources on your policy. I like that because it show it'll then show you too how current the literature was when you were putting that together. So then you may need to go back and review so that and have something else newer on your list of um, references. So I think that's a good always a good idea as well. So the flexibility to go back and review and. And make sure, to your point, that the the evidence is current and that we aren't um, still doing something that doesn't really make sense just because we've always done it this way. 
Exactly. Absolutely. What um, sort of factors would you get or recommendations would you make to an organization who was considering developing nurse-driven protocols? I would say one of the things I've learned over the years, know who your key players are and communicate with them maybe even before a big meeting because many times people will think they're blindsided or they get nervous because they've never heard about this before. And so sometimes it feels like the thought is, are they trying to pull one over my head? Right. Right. Like, and so what I've learned is before I go to those committee meetings, I know who the chair is. And if it's something that I think could be possibly, I don't want to use the word inflammatory. It's not really inflammatory, but it could be something that could be a little sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, I may say, hey, doctor, I've got a packet of information I just would like to go over with you for you to look at before our meeting. And I have found that to be extremely helpful. And when people can hear your heart and can hear the evidence and once they know you especially and know that um, what you're about, um, I think it goes a long way. And in really communication, I think, is the key. Um, if somebody just sees something for the first time, they may need time to digest. So the other thing is you can't really be discouraged if you get turned down the first time. And then you really kind of need to be a, um, I don't want to say a fighter in a bad way, like just have some spirit. We'll call it being spirited. (laughs) Um, Stay spirited and encouraged because, you know, if you really do believe in this, then you're not going to just let it go. Right. Right. So you keep, you keep sharing um, data. You keep sharing why, the why, the why, the why, and then hopefully you'll have a, have a good implementation. So it sounds like don't get discouraged and your passion will shine through if it's something that you truly believe in, which I, again, I think is helps to bring others along with you when they see that um, you're not doing it because, oh, I have to do this. You're doing it because you believe that um, whatever interventions you're, you're discussing will make a true difference. Absolutely. As a nurse, I am curious to know if you've had any resistance from nursing, other nursing professionals as far as um, like, oh my gosh, you want me to do what now? Or has the response been fairly positive? So that's interesting that you should ask that. I've definitely um, been challenged by um, a little bit by the nursing profession at times, probably in lieu of just the more and more that is put on nursing. And sometimes I do hear the comments you know, these are things maybe at times the provider should be doing. Why is nursing having to do it now? Or, you know, with hemodynamic monitoring, um, that part, sometimes they'll say, hey, um, the provider didn't isn't looking at this, so why am I? And I'm right. like, because we're critical care nurses, that's what we do. We figure it out, and we're trained to do this, and we're going to help Um, even if we have to help educate the provider even. Um, So there are times I do have to pause and I have to think, is this, is this, are the nurses capable of doing this? And it needs to make sense and it should not majorly increase workload, hopefully. Um, So there is, you know, there is a challenge. It definitely is a challenge. It's not, they're not always easy discussions or easy, um, decisions, but also if this is what's best, sometimes doing what 
what's best is more work. Right. And and that's kind of the reality. And so, I don't know, I'm just like, we need to do what's best for the patient and it may mean more work. And um, so I think a lot of rolling things like this out are about really educating the why mm-hmm. and getting buy-in with the why so that people will then not be as resistant. Yes. I always joke um, with my family that when I went to nursing school, my training was all built around the rationale. So we didn't ever do anything, an intervention or anything without understanding what the rationale was behind that. So I'm always asking the why. Well, why, you know, even when I'm, mm-hmm. I'm talking to my children, you need to clean your room. Why? Because, and then I give the whole rationale of, as to why they should be cleaning the room. So I, I can completely understand how important it is to make sure that the rationale and the why, and, and I even think sometimes um, what's in it for me also helps to sort of provide that level of education so that people understand why they're doing something or why they're being asked to do one more thing. Because I know quite often I've heard that as well with the growing list of um, demands. Sometimes it does uh, begin to feel overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yes, very true. Um, what have been the greatest learnings throughout the process of designing, implementing, and sustaining nurse-driven protocols in your practice settings? So I think um, one of the greatest learnings throughout all of all of these things for a rollout is that you have to do follow-up. And I was reminded of that just this week as, as we had a meeting and we did some, I was doing some follow-up. I'm like, oh, we just rolled out that housewide um, nurse-driven progressive mobility protocol. I wonder if ever anybody's even documenting. We, we did, um, you know, we made items for them to be able to document. Maybe we should evaluate. So one of the things was a visual on the wall. Well, um, one of the girls went around and looked at multiple floors and found that some of the floors didn't even have that visual put up yet. Not sure why. Um, others had it. Somebody had it, but it was in the wrong place. Um, it was so interesting. And then we're like, um, what about the education? So I got the report from, you know, our what we use for, to do our um, education and only about 20 to 25% of the nurses have even done it, but it was assigned and it was assigned it wasn't due until October 31st. So we're like, okay, so this is all making sense. So people haven't all done the education. They don't even know what these items on the wall are. And it just seems a little haphazard. And I just, we didn't maybe roll this out very well, or this is just part of the follow-up. So now what are we going to do? Are we going to be so discouraged and just say, forget it? No, we're going to regroup. We're going to make sure that it, they're all where they need to be on the doors at the appropriate place, wherever it is, where we're going to document their mobility level. We're going to, um, tell these nurses that they need to get this done in the next two weeks. And then we might have to do another called mini, another secondary rollout. So, you know, you, and and I've been doing this for how many years now? And you think I would have this figured out, right? But there's always follow-up to me is probably the most important follow-up, not just roll something out and then say, whoop, there it goes, right? So follow-up to see if it's even doing what we want it to do. And I like that you called out, don't, 
become discouraged because as you said, you've been doing this for a number of years. Every, I would, I would imagine every protocol that you roll out is probably adopted at a slightly different rate and with slightly different um, interest or enthusiasm. And I think, I think you make a valid point that uh, in order to sustain something, you have to sort of build that follow-up into your, into your plan. It can't just be a to-do list checked off and done and on to the next thing. Although I do appreciate that there's probably many days where you feel like I don't have time for one more thing. (laughs) Yes, yes, but uh, you're exactly correct. Let's not get discouraged. Let's just learn from it and then move forward, right? Now, my last and final question for you, I'm wondering if you were to give um, your top three recommendations to any healthcare organization, what would they be? So I would say if we're talking about recommendations for nurse-driven protocols, I encourage institutions to embrace nurse-driven protocols. I think it will increase productivity. I think it will increase time to treatment. And I think it can help um, help the providers. I mean, we've got some basic things on that protocol as well that are just more benign, like what we can give for simple pain so that we don't have to bug them all through the night, right? Um, Those kinds of things. So I definitely think that um, institutions should embrace nurse-driven protocols. I think, um, secondly, that um, healthcare organizations should... I'm all about um, a nurse-driven committee um, where they can um, work together, whether it's a practice council. Like for us, we have a practice council specifically for the ICU that includes my nurses, um, frontline staff, so that um, they can give their opinions. And that really helps when you are rolling out a nurse-driven initiative you absolutely have to include the bedside nurse Um, or you're going to rule things out based on what I think versus what the real practicality of it is. So um, encouraging nurse-driven protocols, utilizing bedside nurses to, to help with the development of that. And I guess my third recommendation um, would be don't give up. Um, Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Um, or maybe have a pity party for a day, but then the next day say, okay, we're back to work, right? Um, we can do this. Um, I know that I have gotten um, discouraged many times, but then something else will happen, um, and we'll be like, okay, we're back on track. So um, if, you know, I'm I'm all about a nurse-driven protocol, I think it's, it's awesome, and hopefully this has helped inspire somebody who has been thinking about rolling something out that they think would help better um, patient outcomes. This is amazing. Thank you so much, Angela. I truly appreciate having the opportunity to chat with you today. And I'm sure our listeners will have um, enjoyed it just as much as me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss our next episode. Please reach out to us by email if you have any questions, comments, or feedback. We look forward to having you back with us next time. Thank you for joining us for the episode of I Connect with Baxter. All of the opinions and experiences expressed in this episode are those of the guest speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Baxter Canada. If there are other areas of interest you would like to see included on future podcasts, please email those to iConnect at Baxter.com.